Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Church, Liverpool. My name is Paul. I'm one of the one of the leaders here. It's great to see you this morning. If you're new or visiting as well, really good to see you this morning. Two, I've just got one notice um, for us this morning before we jump into our message this morning. First of all, just to let you know that on, on Thursday this week, that is in five days' time, we're having a Monday, Thursday service. So we're having a Monday, Thursday service, which will be taking place in the back room. So that will be at 7.45, a specific time we know. So 7.45, put in your diaries, it'll be in the back room. Come through the Olivedale entrance, which is this side of the building just down through here. So come through there, 7.45, we'll be having a time just to reflect on the cross and reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Okay, as Bonnie said, we are taking a break from the book of Exodus for two weeks during this Easter season. What we're going to be doing today is jumping into Mark's gospel. So if you've got a Bible, open it up at Mark chapter 11. If you haven't, there'll be a Bible in the back of your seats there. So just grab it, um, open it up. If you haven't got one yourself, just feel free, please, take that, take that home with you. What we're going to be answering today is the question that is going to be going over the top of our service and through our service is why did Jesus Christ come? Why did Jesus Christ come? And and how you answer that question determines so much. It determines your future. It determines your understanding of who you are, of who other people are. It, It determines any sense of rest or peace that you might have or might not have as you walk through life. So let me read Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 11, and then we'll pray together. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I want to thank you so much that we have already received so much of your blessing that even this morning as we've gathered, we've been able to sing your praises, sing praises to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we've let the amen from your people sound out from this place again. The Father, we glorify you for that. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit who is amongst us. Father, by your Spirit, help us to see the beauty, the truth, the wonder of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the beauty and truth and wonder of why Jesus came. And Father, help our hearts to rejoice with everything that we have this morning. Amen. Okay, so Mark's gospel, if you're not too much aware of it, it actually is the fastest moving gospel. Mark kind of takes us on a a whistle-stop tour through a lot of events and circumstances in Jesus' life and ministry. And as we join it, we jump in in chapter 11. And Mark, around this point, he begins to slow the pace down a bit. 
as he starts to draw the eye to focus and bring out key details as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, moves towards Jerusalem and his death. And at the end of chapter 10, which we won't read, but we just come out the back of, Jesus Christ and his disciples, they're in a place called Jericho, and they come across this blind beggar on the side of the road. He's sitting on the side of the road, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were around, all the people who could see, they tried to silence this guy. But the blind man, he shouts all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is huge because this man is calling Jesus Christ the son of David. It's a, it's a messianic title. That, that means he's calling Jesus the promised king. So the blind man who can't actually see is the one who recognizes Jesus Christ as God's promised king. And what's interesting is Jesus Christ does not rebuke him. He doesn't correct him. He heals him. And it's with that cry of recognition that Jesus Christ leaves Jericho for Jerusalem because it's the time of the Passover. Now, the Passover is a really big celebration for Israel. Hopefully for us as a church, now that we've just made our way through, through Exodus 1 to 15, we can see that. We understand that. We've actually walked that path with them almost we've seen it from from their point of view and seen what God said in setting up this incredible feast and we saw and remembered that God set it up for his people to remember to celebrate freedom to celebrate that they'd been freed from slavery in Egypt and Jews from all over Israel they come to Jerusalem Jerusalem was about uh, 25,000 people would live in Jerusalem at this this point in time but at the time of Passover and during these feasts there'd be an extra 125,000 people who would make their way to Jerusalem most of them would walk, not many had come by car, and they would be staying in all the surrounding areas. Now, this would be a really exciting time for them. You've got to imagine there's loads of different people from all over Israel coming, all these pilgrims from all around sharing this journey, bumping into people along the road, excited because they're going to get to see friends and family that they might not have seen for a while. It would be a time of singing and dancing and praying and feasting. And Jesus, along with the 12, and I'm assuming a few other of his disciples, are making his way amongst all these other pilgrims. And Jericho, the place that they come from, Jericho is actually the, the lowest city on earth. Found that out this week, I didn't know that. The lowest city on earth, 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is a 15-mile walk. Jerusalem is 2,000 feet above sea level. So it wouldn't be a big climb. And the way that they walked, they would have had to have, they'd have had to have gone through a hot, dusty desert. It's not easy. To make it even worse, they would have gone over the Mount of Olives, which is 2,600 feet above sea level. And as they made their way over the top of the Mount of Olives, it would have been when they get their first glimpse, their first sighting of Jerusalem on this journey, God's holy city. And the Mount of Olives to the east would have looked down on the Temple Mount, where the temple was. And for the people, this would have been exhilarating for them. This is the, this is the scene, this is the setting for this monumental event that they're about to witness Jesus Christ, God's son, coming down the mountain to his city amongst his people. And what Jesus does, as we just read, he gives instructions in verse two to three. He said, there's a village ahead. In that village, you're gonna find a colt. A colt is a young donkey. And you're gonna find it tied. No one's ever sat on this colt. Untie it. He says, untie the tied colt. Untie the tied colt. Really interesting, he said it twice. Bring it here. And if anyone asks you, tell them that I need it. I'll send it, I'll send it back. So the disciples go, and what they do is they find it exactly as Jesus Christ said. They untied the tied donkey. The people listened 
when, asked the, when they asked the question, just like Jesus Christ has said, and the disciples, they bring it to Jesus, and no one's ever sat in it, so it's not got a saddle on the donkey, so what they do is they put their cloaks on the colt, and they help Jesus up, and on he gets onto this donkey, and they all move together towards Jerusalem. Jesus Christ knows exactly what he's doing here, folks. He knows exactly what his actions are signifying. With the blind man's messianic cry ringing in their ears, following them from Jericho, Jesus Christ deliberately, publicly, shows himself to be the promised king, God's king. And there are three waves that are woven through this story that we see it. First of all, it's a cult that no one's ever sat on. This is an animal that had been set aside for a special task, a sacred task. Second of all, you see this reference to tie and untie. We see it four times. Now, this is taken from a prophecy in Genesis 49, 10 to 11, when Jacob is speaking to his sons. And he says, the sign of the one to come from Judah, that's the tribe of, of Judah, the true ruler of Judah, to whom the nations of the world submit. He is the one who ties and unties the donkey. That's a strange prophecy, I know, but it's there. And this is what Jesus is doing. But the most clear one, I think, is taken from Zechariah 9, verse 9. The verses will be on the screen for us. Rejoice greatly. This is many years before Jesus came. One of the prophets speaking this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Could it be any clearer for us? Could this be any clearer? Jesus Christ is deliberately showing himself to be the promised king. He's saying, it's me. I'm here. The one that was promised, it's me. This is deliberate, and this is acted upon. So how do people react? Remember, there are loads of people coming for the Passover, loads of them, or from all over, and they would have been excited. The expectation would have been high. And what they do, when, when they see Jesus doing this, they put their cloaks on the floor. Now, this is symbolic for them. It's, it's symbolic for a crowd to do in welcoming and submitting to royalty. They wave these branches, which is a symbol of, of Israelite victory over their enemies. That's what they, the, what they do in triumphant celebration. They'd use it in the feasts. And what they're doing, I think, is they're showing that they believe this is the king who has come to deliver Israel from their enemies. And they shout, verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is this expressive outburst of prayer and praise with a prayer within it that God would save his people. Now, the, the actual direct translation is a, is a please save, save now. It's the way that the Old Testament people would appeal to the king, save now, please save. So they're celebrating Jesus Christ as God's coming king and they're asking for deliverance. That blessed is he, what's being said there, that is taken from Psalm 118, verse 26. And they would have sang this at the Passover. A psalm that they would have sang to remember that God delivers his people from their enemies. Jesus Christ, he doesn't stop them. That's key, he doesn't stop them. Why? Because he is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He is God's promised king. He's showing them. So what's he gonna do now? See, the expectation must have been massive. I find this really interesting, this turn. But, but that expectation, that, that anticipation, it doesn't seem to last. What does he do? He goes into the temple, he looks around, he inspects it, and then because it's late, we read that he went back out the city to a place called Bethany. That seems almost like an anticlimax, doesn't it? So what's happening here? 
I want to keep coming back to this question. Why did Jesus come? And that's right at the heart of what's going on here. It's, you see, the disciples, those closest to Jesus and the crowds, misunderstood why Jesus came. From their perspective, I think it's clear from the Gospels that, that they think he'd come to free his people from the oppression of Rome. 200 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came, there was a, a Syrian king called Antiochus Epiphanes. And this guy was like the epitome of, of evil. He described himself as the incarnate God come in the flesh. And he took over Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. And the, the temple's key for God's people because it's the center point of who they are. It's the center point of their relationship to God. The temple is at the heart of who they were as a people. And what happened is people from Israel rose up, cleansed and rebuilt the temple. And in celebration, what they did, they waved ivy and palm branches. They sang hymns of praise for God's deliverance. And the people are seeing something similar happening here. Except the enemy this time is in Syria, but it's Rome. They're thinking that Jesus Christ has come to free Israel from Roman oppression. But they've misunderstood the problem. They've misunderstood the king's task. Jesus Christ, God's king, had come to free his people. He had come to cleanse and rebuild the temple. It just wasn't the way that they thought. And Jesus Christ shows them in an interesting turn of events in the verses that follow. So verse 12 to 13, 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? It's like fig tree wasn't even meant to be giving fruit, was it? But to dig away, you see what Jesus Christ is doing here. You see, fig trees, they would put out leaves, and what would happen is the fruit would come later. But around this time of year, there would be this small, edible fruit that would appear. as like a first fruit of what is to come, a sign of the later fruit. But it's only leaves. It hadn't produced. So Jesus Christ curses it. A bit later on, verse 21, we read that it, it withered within 24 hours. What Jesus Christ is doing here, he's acting out a parable for them. This fig tree is a metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament and their relationship with God. God is cursing fruitless Israel. He's saying they should be producing fruit, but they're not. And then what happens? The focus shifts straight to the temple. It moves to the temple, the place that, that Israel, and don't forget all of humanity, because the Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish, could come into the temple, a temple in the court of the Gentiles. And they were able to meet with the living God there through sacrifice. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. And he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In Leviticus, there's a book in the Old Testament, we see that leprosy, it's a symbolic of sin. And a house itself could have leprosy. And that leprosy, the decay within the house, it could spread through the house. And what would happen, according to the law that the people had, well, on the first visit, the priest would inspect the house. 
This, I think, is what Jesus is doing back in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, and then he went out. But on the second visit, if it was still there, the priest was to cleanse it, to purify it. And if the leprosy had spread, the house was to be ripped apart, stone from stone, timber from timber, brick by brick. And that's what happens. In that second visit, Jesus Christ finds sin everywhere. This place had become corrupted. So the place where people were to come to meet and to worship God in freedom of forgiveness, in freedom of relationship, had become a place of greed and oppression, a place where people were making money off sacrifices. The poor who were invited into God's presence were actually being taken advantage of. See, outside the temple, it was 3P for a pair of those which, those which the, the poor would have used for a sacrifice. But inside the temple, it was 75P or equivalent. See, his house, as Jesus says here, has become a place of robbers and a place of thieves. And this specific place where all of this is happening is the place where the Gentiles would come to to worship. Jesus Christ, in righteous anger, he cleanses the house. He shows it for what it is. That's his priestly duty. The temple, the meeting place between God and man is rotten. It should have been a place of freedom. It should have been a place for forgiveness from sin. It should have been a place where God meets and forms his people. But it had become a place for oppression. A tool for oppression. A place of slavery of his people by his people. Jesus Christ had come to free his people. He had come so that man and God could be together again. And he had come to fix the biggest problem God's people had. It's just they didn't realize what that biggest problem was. The biggest problem wasn't Rome. The problem was not just outside of them. The problem was within them. They were part of the problem. The human heart was rotten and it needed purifying. And all people, including his own people, needed saving from their sin. The most important question that you are going to hear today that I think demands an answer. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came because he came to free his people by dealing with their biggest problem, which was their sin. It should have been no surprise to the disciples. God's word is clear. Even in the Old Testament, folks, there's a, a really famous account in Genesis 19, which is a, a famous account of a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens is God's people, you see this through the eyes of Abraham and the faithful. They look and see this depravity outside in the world. And you see it, it's, it's given as an example of extreme depravity. And God judges them. But then a little while later in Judges 19, within God's own people, we, hear, we read about this horrific account of a rape of a woman in Israel by the people of Israel within God's people. And the writer of Judges chooses to use a third of the same language and phrases. It's identical. He's making a point. And his point is for this writer, he's showing that what happens outside of God's people can quickly, quickly come to happen within God's people. Because the problem is not types of people. The problem is the sinful human heart. Jesus Christ has been really clear. And he's been really clear with them. To deal with sin meant he had to die. He has been clear in the Gospels why he came. Chapter 8, verse 31, all of these will be on the screen. And he began to teach them. So this is just before the triumphal entry that we've read in chapter 11, chapter 8, 31 of Mark. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. We don't just hear that he said it, we're told he said it plainly. 
Jesus Christ is telling them what's going to happen. Chapter 9, 31, again, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Clear? Chapter 10, verse 45, just before our account, in response to James and John, John seeking more glory and power, he says this, For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Three times before we even get to Mark chapter 11, Jesus Christ, God's promised king, tells his people plainly, he came to die and he came to rise again. Jesus Christ, God's king, rides in on a colt, fully aware of what is happening, fully aware of what is going to happen. The crowd around him singing and praising didn't understand why Jesus came. The chief priests and the scribes, the ones who were in the temple every day, didn't understand why Jesus came. The disciples who had spent all of this time with him didn't understand why he came. They were with him every day. And it's such an important question for us to answer. Why did Jesus Christ come? And I just want to bring this home with three responses that we can have for why Jesus Christ came. Number one, we can reject him and the fact that he came, which rationally is ludicrous, just a highlight. We can reject him and the fact that he came. 300 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, Alexander the Great, you read about him in history, he was actually going around conquering the world. And he went all around the Middle East and he was taking over all the cities, destroying all these different places and, and ruling them. And it's prophesied in the Old Testament, in Zechariah that we looked at before. And he moves into Jerusalem, respectful in a way of the temple sacrifice. And what you read is that he arrives in Jerusalem to present a sacrifice at the temple. And he comes in peace. And this peace that he comes in is represented by him riding in on a donkey rather than a horse, which is an animal of war. Many people think, and I, and I put myself alongside these, that Alexander the Great, he foreshadows Jesus Christ. And the Zechariah prophecy, it's talking about him in chapter, in, in chapter 9, verse 1 through to 8. And he moves through the land around Jerusalem in peace with a message that if people reject the peaceful king who rides in on a donkey, he will come back again on a horse and nobody will be able to withstand him. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16 says this about the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he will return. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them, rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is coming back. The Bible tells us that he's coming back on a horse, and it's a war horse. There will be another triumphal entry, and every eye will see, and every knee will bow, because he will be coming back to judge the living and the dead. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an offer of peace. The terms of peace are remarkable. You don't have to do anything, just trust him. He's done it all, right here, right now. He is a king who comes 
in peace. He brings peace and he's inviting you to peace. It's freely given in his name. So folks, please see the king who rides in on a donkey, whose throne was a cross. Don't wait to see the king who returns on a horse that nobody can withstand. Second, we can allow the distraction or our own agendas to distort why Jesus Christ came. We could be in, in one level like the crowd, so we can think that the real problem isn't us, okay? It's not our own sin. It's external to us. It's other people or another thing. We can say things like, God, just fix all these things around me and it will be fine. Fix that person or that situation. But we get surprised when the same problem keeps happening and happening and happening. We ignore our own condition. We ignore our own need for forgiveness, our own need for grace and help. Folks, the blind man had it right. Son of David, have mercy. Folks, if you are struggling, can I suggest a starting point for you right now? Start this day, right today, right now, afresh. And start every day with a simple prayer, God have mercy on me. God have mercy on me. Every single one of us needs God's mercy. And it's surprising when God changes us, how perception changes. Perception of situations and other people relationships, the future, we need God's mercy. Or we could be like the chief priests and the scribes. They were ruled by fear and they were ruled by control. That's often a sin that you can see pushing its way into leadership, fear and control. And these people, they feared losing power, they, they feared losing finances, they feared the people and a rising up of the people which would take their control. Can I just say fear is the world's worst motivator? Fear is the world's worst decision maker. Fear is the world's worst prioritizer. Believe me, I walk this path on that path and I have to confess and repent of it so much. Cast your anxieties on the Lord Jesus Christ because he came to take away any reason that we might have to fear. Or we could be like the disciples and it could actually be our own pride. Just wanna read a, a passage a little bit later on. If you put that up for us, Jimmy, it's from chapter 14, verse 26. 31 it says this and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives and jesus said to them you will all fall away for it's written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered but after i am raised up i will go before you to gallery next one peter said to him even though they all fall away i will not and jesus said to him truly truly i tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times but peter said emphatically if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. I just find this fascinating. This is a big challenge for me because what happened here is Jesus says, I'm going to die. And I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to be raised to life. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And I'm going to go before you to this place. And Peter is sat there listening to these words. I find it fascinating. Surely you think if you were there, what, what? You're going to be, what do you mean you're going to be raised up? What do you mean you're going to go before? But he misses all of that. And what does he do? He's like, I'm not going to let you down. Even if all of these guys, because they probably will, even if they do, I'm not going to let you down. That's what he says. It's pride. He's like, not me. I'm better than these. I can't show any weakness, so therefore I'm not going to show any weakness. And his, his ways of thinking is distorted by his own agenda. No, 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 Jesus, this way, not your way. You're wrong. Where does that you? 
Where is your own agenda distorting what Jesus Christ is doing? Where do we miss the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives? Because we're so absorbed by our own thinking, our own desires, our own motivations, our own way of life, the things that we want to do, and therefore we miss the beauty and the goodness and the grace and the truth and the freedom and the redemption, the liberation, all of those things. We miss it because we're concentrating so many, so much on the wrong things. And it robs us of our joy. So just thinking on those things, folks. Where do you need to cry for mercy? What anxieties do you need to cast? What pride do you need to confess? And the third response is that we can ask God to help us see why Jesus Christ came. See, the Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem as God's king to free God's people. The Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem as the great high priest to purify his people, to purify his house. The Lord Jesus Christ, he entered Jerusalem as the perfect Passover lamb, ready at this time to be inspected, to be taken in and inspected, to be the pure, perfect one. See, it was at the same time that, that the, the crowd was shouting that all the lambs were being driven into Jerusalem and the noise of their bleating will have been at the same time with the noise of the crowd singing his name. The Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem to stand in our place to take our punishment, all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. The Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem to die for us, to go through death. And he knew all of this as he rode on that cult, all of it. The Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ knew his people from before the foundation of the world. That, if you know him, means you and means me. That blows my mind. He knew who he was doing it for. He knew it as he was riding in. Just think on that. He did it all. He knew he was doing who he was doing it for. He knew what needed to be done, and he did it all. Everything that was necessary for us, broken, sinful humanity, to be with God, he did. He finished it. He accomplished it. And we are free. We reject and rebel and walk away from God. We are free because God himself comes to us, comes to us in peace. And the way that he gives us peace is by taking everything upon himself. We are free. We are alive. We are adopted children of God because he came. We are a new people, a new people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, all loved, chosen by God himself. Revelation 7 verse 9 to 10 speaks of the scene in heaven right now. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the cry in heaven right now. That is the cry of the pilgrims who have gone on this journey before us. The pilgrims who have been carried through death into the arms of God. The pilgrims, God's people in God's presence right now, worshiping right now the king who came. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The pilgrims singing songs of praise for the king who, the king who came and the king who is coming back. And folks, we here as pilgrims on this earth, we join them. 
We join them as we worship. We join them as we sing in praises to King Jesus. So let's respond now as we do that. Can I invite you to stand? And I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Father, forgive us. We turn away. We move away. We reject you. Father, where that rejection is happening right now, I pray that by your spirit you would move in hearts and lives. Father, I pray for those who don't know you that now will be a moment where you reveal yourself to them, that they would see the beauty of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, why he came. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would move in people's hearts. Please do that, we ask. Father, for, for those of us who know you, help us to see the fullness of why you came. Father, forgive us for those things that distract us. Father, show us the areas of our lives, the things that we live for, the, the things that we are putting before you, our own agendas that are distorting our view and taking our eyes away from seeing who you are and what you came to do. Father, show us the way that that we think it's other people that need to be fixed. Father, show us our own need and help us in liberation to Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, knowing that we've received the fullness of mercy through Jesus. Father, help us to, to, to move away from fear. Father, help us to cast our anxieties on you because you are a God who loves your people and you give peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you rode in on the donkey and you brought peace. That the cross, even though you were above every single created thing, even though you uphold the universe in the palm of your hand, that the throne you went to was a cross. And you took our punishment, you took our sin, you took our guilt. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. I pray by your spirit that you would help us to trust you, that you would help our hearts to see the freedom we have in you. Where there are things now we need to confess, even now as we sing, Father, I pray that you'd be doing a work in us. Help us to rejoice, help us to sing as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in song. Father, help us to see the beauty and the truth and the wonder and the infinite eternal worth of who he is. Father, fill our minds with, with the truth of the gospel. Fill our hearts with the joy and response, Father. Excite us to see, Father, that you are coming back. The Lord Jesus Christ will return and we will be with you forever. We thank you for that day. We thank you that we will be with you forever in perfection and that we will be with you forever in an eternal blessed reality. Father, we thank you for that. Be with us now as we sing and be glorified in this place, we ask. Amen.